during a recent long conversation with Lawrence Bush, we started talking about our relationship to sound, and particularly about our relationship to the sound that is created in a live environment. And he dropped this phrase on me. He described that moment leaving the venue, taking that experience somewhere else. He describes that moment as being when the precision of reality is abandoned to the imprecision of memory. We walk away from the musical experience that we have, what is left behind, what resonates with us. And it is that feeling, that sense, that I think Lawrence is incredibly wrapped up in. Not just what sound does to us in the now, but what does it do to us in the future? What do we take away? What remains not just in our memory, but also in our body as a sense memory? I'm Stu Buchanan, and this is Out From Under a weekly exploration of eclectic and experimental music broadcast on Resonance Extra in the UK and podcast by FBI Radio in Sydney. And in this episode, we're featuring composer, label manager, curator, musician, sound artist, Lawrence English. You may know Lawrence through his association as the founder and driver behind the record label Room 40, which launched in the year 2000 and is one of the most oft-cited Australian record labels, certainly in the experimental sphere. The website Fact named Room 40 one of the best labels of 2015, which is no mean feat for a label that isn't of itself 15 years old. There's 150 releases listed on Discogs and more on its sub-labels A Guide to Saints and Someone Good. The roster kind of reads like a who's who of experimental music in 2016. David Toop, Tim Hecker, Grouper, and Australian artists like Oran Barchi, Chris Abrahams, and Ben Frost. Now, if the next little sequence were a BuzzFeed post, it would be titled something like 10 Amazing Things I Learn About Lawrence English While Conducting This Interview. Except there's not 10, there's three. Number one, Lawrence's love of sound dates back to the days spent birdwatching with his father. It was at that time that notions were born in his head. The notions of what you can hear, what you can't hear, the tension between subject and object, the tyranny and opportunity that comes through mediation and recording. Number two, Lawrence can really rock a hat. Every photograph you'll see of him pretty much on his social media and in magazines and such like, he's always rocking a fantastic hat. And I am incredibly envious that he can pull that off. And actually off mic at the end of the interview, we had a very long conversation about how one picks the best hat. And I should at this point give my gratitude to Lawrence for giving me a steer on how I might find that next great hat. Number three, Lawrence can talk a lot and doesn't need any prompting. There's no catalyst. You could literally put down the recorder, press play and say, Lawrence, talk. And away he'll go. In fact, when I listened back to the interview and I heard myself asking questions, I was almost embarrassed because I was just interrupting his flow. I should have just let the guy keep going. And by the end of the interview, I was pretty much doing exactly that. I'd stepped out entirely and I just watched him go. Lawrence is on a mission to make sound and experimental work accessible, to make them part of our everyday listening, for us to give them that most precious of commodities, our time. And in this wide-ranging discussion, he talks in detail about his long-standing relationship with Brisbane. He's never lived anywhere else, and so therefore he's watched it grow over the last four decades. And indeed, in this interview, he gives us something that is probably akin to a complete oral history 
of the Brisbane experimental music scene. He also talks in depth about our relationship with sound, all the complexities and problems and joys that lie therein, some of which is wrapped into what he calls the relational listening theory. But as I think will become clear in this role as evangelist for sound, Lawrence has learned to control any verbose tendencies. As he kind of sets out his stall, he does so in a way that's really clear, is articulate and inclusive. He wants us to come on board. He wants us to join him on this journey, this trajectory. This is Lawrence English on Out From Under. I've only ever lived in Brisbane, you know, for any period of time I've only ever lived here. And I think probably the reason that I stayed was all of the things that sit around music that facilitate it. You know, I'm always fascinated by when you see a a certain kind of, um, like a subset of music emerge out of something like an economic change, a political change, whatever the case might be. You know, some of the stuff that I really got into in the the 90s, for example, Ilbient, you know, I, I was fascinated by the fact that basically that was to do with the death of the industrial dream in America, that all of these spaces became available in in Brooklyn and um, parts of Manhattan. And it was possible for people to live in these huge spaces, put on parties, and it cost nothing because they were basically vacant buildings. Brisbane, at least when I was uh, starting out doing Room 40 and and, uh, I guess the, the label before that in the late 90s, it was incredibly cheap to live here. That was fantastic, you know, that, that meant that in a way you could focus on things, you, were, you had this sort of leverage, if you like, that meant you could spend time just doing the things that you were interested in. Uh, and at the same time as that, uh, Brisbane, I think in comparison to somewhere like Sydney and Melbourne, if we're talking about the kind of East Coast Australian experience, in Sydney, a lot of the cultural infrastructure was complete by the turn of the, the 21st century. In Brisbane, none of it was, really. You know, in the, in the 90s, uh, I can say without fail, there were probably like three or four events, only three or four events in, in the kind of experimental uh, avant-garde world, if you like, uh, that were blipped on the radar, you know, and they were incredibly fundamental. There was, for me, seeing the boredoms in 1996 at the Roxy, which is kind of like a rock club. It was actually on tour with Regurgitator, kind of Australian rock band. And Paul Curtis, to his credit, who was the manager of a Gurgitator, and I think he still is, uh, 
and ran, ran this label Valve was really passionate about certain kinds of like quite weird music and it's people like that that set up the scene for what was to come and uh, so there was that there was someone like you know Francisco Lopez came in here in 1998 and did a concert at a space at, at Metro Arts a small kind of like uh, performing arts space in, in the city and you know there are a couple other there was a small performance series here uh, Ambient Explosions and then Small Black Box a little bit later that was about kind of exploring some of the kind of more drone ambient experimental music happening but it was all very small scale and all very uh focused inwards and i think for me from the outset what i was interested in doing was the exact opposite to that this outward reaching i wanted in in my you know naivety or whatever it may be i honestly felt like we were a small community but there were hundreds of small communities everywhere else and it was just about someone reaching out and shaking the hands of these other small communities and putting us all together and that was basically one of the reasons that I started Room 40 was to kind of tie together these groups of people that I knew about and you know people like uh, DJ Olive is a great example that I was really into his group We one of the Ilbient groups in New York I reached out to him in I think 1998 and did I actually interviewed him about We and it was kind of at the, the end of their time together and I found it really inspirational to know that there was this group of people doing stuff on the other side of the planet just making these things occur entirely pre-internet that kind of like that mid-90s I mean we knew the internet was there and I had it I did have an email address a Hotmail address uh, when Hotmail was not owned by Microsoft so that's that's how far back it goes uh, and when I was interested in hell.com, I don't know if anyone ever went there, but hell.com was an extraordinary web portal uh, that you can now read about on Wikipedia. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was it was still very much coming out of the fanzine culture, that the idea that there was a sort of subculture uh, somehow um, and that there were these things that existed in time and geography and were isolated from one another and you somehow tapped into them or you didn't and you found out about it after it was all over and I, I kind of basically was really inspired by that and by that that geographic isolation and I basically started Room 40 to, to try and address some of that and to to put Brisbane in touch with those things and put me in touch with them because I at that point had pretty much decided to stay here uh, because of those those factors around the possibility to actually be dedicated and work on that and then after that basically in the next sort of half decade places like the brisbane powerhouse came online uh, the judith wright center of contemporary art came online the uh, institute of modern art moved there were all of these things that went on then goma opened after that and suddenly very very swiftly there was this burst of kind of creative energy uh, which you know in some respects was coming out of the kind of interests of the government making them to do with tourism and all sorts of things but they did have a flow-on effect onto the people on the ground so i was very fortunate to kind of meet people like zane trow who's then director of the uh the powerhouse who encouraged me to start curating programs there uh the general manager of the powerhouse chris bowen went to work at uh the judith wright center as the manager there and he was like well, we, i love what you did at the powerhouse would you like to do a similar program here so within the period of sort of five or six years we were suddenly in a position where we could bring 10, 15 people to Australia every single year. And word travelled quickly that this was something that was possible. We became part of a kind of network that I think was reflected 
elsewhere through festivals like What Is Music, Liquid Architecture, Now Now, all of these groups along the East Coast particularly, and I guess to some degree people like Tura in Western Australia, you know, there was this, suddenly there was this network which was incredibly strong. I think in the first, probably from like 2003 to 2006, seven, it was such a, such a tight network. You know, I, I, was, I became one of the co-directors of Liquid Architecture and came here every year, I think, since 2002. Same with um, What Is Music. You know, I did the, the kind of co-productions up here for that until 2006. And it was a really... It felt really vigorous and alive and exciting, actually, to, to kind of be part of that thing. And the audiences were really... Like, people were responding to it. You know, when we started out, a great night was when you had 50 people when we finished the the final fabric which was a series we were running at the at the powerhouse i think the first one first one was actually really huge it was ironically with dj olive we invited him down to do a show with me and uh, two other musicians heinz riegler and tam Patton, in this group we had called io3 and it was like a, the one of the opening one of the weekend celebrations when the center first opened we had it was raining outside so everyone had to come inside with like 600 people it was an amazing concert and which ended up being released as powerhouse sessions the one of the first editions on the label in the editions series uh but you know as time went on with the the fabric series you know the early shows when they were regular shows sort of 50 60 70 people you're astounding fantastic when we finished the final show was like 350 people and uh we're in a room that did not take anywhere near that amount of people so it was quite cramped but it was fantastic and it felt very uh satisfying to know that there was now an audience and an interest in the work that and by no means are we the only people pushing this agenda it's just that there that there was enough there's a critical mass that if you were hungry for that kind of work there was enough that could satisfy you that you could choose to stay here like what well, this is probably the late 90s i came in contact with a couple of artists people like uh john chantler who at that point was not making solo work didn't make solo work until he moved to japan but he was in a group called artific uh with another another guy here and uh you know i came across his work there were people like tam Patton. uh there were a lot of other people making experimental work lloyd barrett whole range of different people uh doing it i didn't necessarily want to pull out of that as the kind of crux of why the, i mean certainly john is a great example you know i heard uh some of his earliest solo work which was on cdr uh, and he had a, the inventing zero label that he'd started and he published one record which i, I really enjoyed and, and knowing that there was an opportunity to maybe up the stakes on what he was doing it's kind of why i think room 40 the other part of white star was because there was music that i could see that was being published that didn't necessarily in my opinion reach as far as it should and that was actually also for international artists as well you know there were people that were making solo work like again going back to dj of that sleep record that he made i just felt everyone needed to hear that record because it was so 
profound and beautiful. And, you know, that certainly in that first sort of five years of Room 40, we were very much focused on the, those things that were, you know, I was coming in contact with um, from all over the world. I mean, there was definitely material from here as well. People like Eric Griswold, for example, the prepared pianist, you know, hearing his work w- was transformative. Uh, and it was interesting because during that time, things were quite, in some respects, segregated. You know, whereas there's more of an alignment now, you have a very natural sense of, something like, you know, whatever you, you might call new music for one of a much better term, um, and electronic music and, and experimental work and, what, you know, whatever else you want to put into improvisation, that all started to merge together really successfully here in probably like 2005. There were things like um, Audio Pollen that was being done by Joel Stern uh, and Yusuke Akai. I mean, that performance series brought together all of those interests and just naturalised them. And I think it's always the way that early on there is this kind of unnatural segregation that happens where people don't really know how to make contact with each other. But we're all interested in the same thing. It just took, you know, two or three of us to put on performance series and show, well, you can have some free jazz guitar and then have, like, you know, hardcore noise and then a sort of weird avant-pop song and it's no problem. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of music we're all going to enjoy together. For me, I think the interesting part about Brisbane, if we're thinking about Brisbane specifically and this idea of how things came together, is that there was a point at which there was a critical mass of activity, and I mean both audience and performers, where everything just meshed. Because up until that point, you'd had these spot fires, but what you were waiting for was the bushfire. And eventually, there were enough of the spot fires that it just, everything went up. And it was still in that period where it was affordable and that there were a lot of performance spaces some of them completely you know audio pollen used to happen out the back of a fruit shop in west end which is one of the suburbs on the the south side here and it was perfectly natural i mean occasionally quite rank depending on what fruit was in season but you know it had a it had a quality all its own and uh same with places like you know the the small black box was happening at the ima at the space that it's in now in in the screening room and, you know, it served a very different but similar kind of complementary function. And then the shows that we were doing at the Powerhouse and, and at the Judith Wright Centre at that stage, again, were complementary but occupying another space. So there was this very natural kind of map that happened. And you could cycle through all those things and over the period of a month or a couple of months be exposed to everything from, you know, Mersbau through to some guy that's just you know, getting into uh, some kind of piece of technology and has decided to make a live set and it's his first show out. That was fantastic because 
the other important thing was it gave a sense of not I don't know if hierarchy is the right word but there was a trajectory that you could at one end start uh, from ground zero nothing and at the other end be exposed to work that is recognized internationally as some of the most important contemporary pieces happening right now that's important because you need to recognize that there's a there's a gateway that there are doorways and within those doorways uh, you can discover things about yourself and about where you are that that are foundational that form in fact who you are and I mean for me it's uh, today uh, Tony Conrad passed today and for me it's a it's a personal but a great example you know Tony came here in 2006 I think for uh, liquid architecture and you know I'd I'd known his work for a long time but seeing him perform and listening to him perform and spending time with him was incredibly foundational for me, you know, for a whole range of different reasons. Some of them philosophical, um, some of them about the, the nature of how you mature as an artist and the possibility to mature as an artist. And then also just really simple things like the kind of cultural resonance of what he did with his life um, were hugely inspiring and important and still to this day hold a certain kind of value for me that I, I never, it's never going to go away. Those experiences are, are, the value of them are so much more than the moment. That, you know, they, they linger in time and they take on a greater weight as you start to recognise the generosity of the people that you come in contact with. For me, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by in performance is that there's this this kind of elegant tension between the kind of individuated subjective experience of the performance and the sound of the performance. And certainly for my live shows, that's very much what I'm interested in. But at the same time, this kind of collective emotional, uh, intellectual, whatever you want to call it, uh, movement that you're on together. And I think that's a really interesting tension that when you start to play with it, it becomes fascinating and I think even just contemplating it you know there's something so uh, f- for me at least seductive about that idea of the kind of occupation of the body with sound uh, and it's not just you know that there I guess it's those two dimensions it's the body is near the, f- the sort of physicality for the physical presence of the sound but then that kind of like interior psychological resonance that happens with the sound as well as you begin to let that thing wash over you allow you to transcend or not into some other kind of place uh, and certainly you know that there have been numerous concerts over the years that have I think everyone has come out with a new appreciation for the profound possibility of sound as a medium for communication even if you don't necessarily or you're incapable of extracting meaning you know that there has been something uh you've experienced something that will reveal itself in the future. That's Lawrence English, one out, one under, for Resonance Extra. As I mentioned at the top, Lawrence loves to talk, a fact that I hope now is becoming clear. But while he himself might not necessarily pause for breath, we should pause for some other sounds. I wanted to play a couple of selections from Room 40 while we take this pause 
in a moment something from Ross Manning from his 2015 album Interlacing we're going to hear the track Expand Scatter but first to Lawrence himself from his album Wilderness of Mirrors this is Hapless Gatherer
the critical thing that I'm interested in with a performance is I want people to walk out and have a reaction to it. The worst thing, if I hear the word nice, I'm I'm racked with a sense of disappointment and failure because it's, I mean, I don't really like nice food. I, I like inspiring food. I like in, incredible coffee. I don't want a nice, that was, that, that wasn't, it's like saying it was acceptable. What, you know, I, I don't want to settle for acceptable. And I, and certainly with the, all of the kind of programs that we've curated, one of the drives has been to have that experience that I, I had when I saw the boredoms, you know, where I walked out of the concert, I thought, uh, and, you know, in some respects, I didn't really even understood what I've experienced just then, but I knew that it was something I had to be part of. And basically from then onwards, I was to varying degrees incredibly, you know, I would go as far as to say evangelical about this stuff, you know, because I, I had a profound experience, many profound experiences uh, with sound, and I know everyone can. It's just whether or not, one, you have the opportunity to, which was obviously a big part of it, two, whether you have the right conditions for that, and that's something that I think probably was one of the great differentiators between Room 40 and some of the other uh, programs and performance series in Brisbane is that I was obsessed with a kind of production capability which was about the ability for the the artist to deliver the sound that they created in a way that respected the work that you know if there was a physical capacity for the work that that could be realized um, particularly someone like Mersbauer for example if you if you don't have the right equipment the it's meaningless it, it delivers absolutely nothing of the sense of what it can be and that still to this day is one of the things that really drives me is that desire to be able to transmit an artist's uh, work in the best way possible. In terms of making a, a record and sending it out into the world, I think that you have to abandon all control. There is no way that you can control the circumstances under which uh, people are going to encounter the work. And in some respects, I, I would like to think with records particularly, because they offer a certain kind of potential for re-engagement, there's something about live performance which is about that moment and the extinction of the moment and the extinction of the performance, as it occurs, it can never get, be returned to at all. Records are a kind of false promise of that. You know, you can return to a record, but always the conditions under which you can listen to it are going to be slightly different, whether it be the format through which you're listening or, you know, your mental state, whatever the case might be. And I know I've encountered many records that I did not appreciate at first that I've come back to or appreciated greatly at first and have returned to and hold none of that particular thing because my life is circumstances have changed. In performance... It's, very, it's, it's about now. It's about right now. And then in the future, it takes on a different kind of meaning. But you can never go back to that now. And the kind of precision of reality uh, is, is abandoned for the kind of imprecision of memory, which is absolutely fine with me. Yeah. There's that great idea that, you know, the quote, you know, I like to remember things how I remember them, not how they were. And I think there's something quite beautiful in that. Because... I, 
obviously sound is one of those things that, and for me, one of the things I love about sound and I find perhaps most poetic and elegant about it is that the moment that we recognize it, the moment that we take it in, the moment that I finish this sentence and you can make sense of the sentence, it's gone and it can never be returned to. There's this kind of constant extinction, the burying sound in the kind of shallow grave of memory. And I think it is actually a really, really powerful thing because you have to be present. And I think with record listening, and there's a lot of conversation around this at the moment, the people encountering music in different ways, you can have music on and not be present. And I think a lot of our listening happens like that, that we have no agency or activity or uh, interest in some respects. To be cruel, you know, there is no... It's there merely as a as a kind of backdrop in the same way that the traffic is a backdrop for us out the window right now. So for me, when I put a record out, what I am very conscious of is that the conditions under which that encounter happens between an audience and an artist is very different to what it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. At that time, it was about an economic exchange in that someone would walk into a record store, I would walk into a record store and I would purchase a very usually very expensive record because everything in Australia that was on vinyl was very expensive and CDs too, you'd be paying $35 or if you need to get a Japanese import that was an instant $65 to $85 for the CD. Um, You would go and purchase that and you would take that object home and you would put it on and because of that economic exchange that had happened, there was in some ways uh, an obligation to engage with that work again and again because you couldn't afford to buy anything else and there was no other access. Um, There was the radio, sure, but the radio was not going to play this record in full for you and you had to make the commitment to do it. So I think what was interesting about that time was that when you did make that commitment to a record, if there was, you know, track two, you didn't like that track, well, you just had to plough through that track because it got you to track three and you had to... Oh, I found, I had to think... What is it about this piece of music that is I don't enjoy as much as track one and track three? So there's a kind of critical engagement I found that happened with music because you were spending time with the same material. Now it is obviously the complete antithesis of that in that we have the most unbelievable amount of access to music uh, and music that is without any kind of economic ramification now I think the critical thing is about another kind of exchange, which is the exchange of time. And time is now the most precious asset that we have. And when I am making an offer to someone, like uh, from an artist on, the, on Room 40 or as an artist myself, I'm asking someone to give me the, about the most precious thing they have, which is their time, because I want that time as focused and as meaningful as an exchange can happen between me through that record and that person uh, so I think that's made me very conscious of what it is that goes out into the world and in what way and certainly for the label I would like to think that the kind of curatorial implication is that that, that things need to I need to be moved by it and I, you know I, when I say that I mean the first kind of cut off for a record generally is that I, I, I have to believe in it and I have to believe in the work of that artist. 
And sometimes I have that question of like, I don't necessarily understand. I need to go back and understand why it is that this track and this thing or this side of the record doesn't make sense. And often they're now conversations that I have with other artists. And I, I hope that they're valuable conversations that I have with people. But certainly in the last 12 months, you know, a lot of, if for want of a better term, sequence editing has, has happened on various kinds of releases. And uh, I really enjoy that because I like the kind of problem-solving nature that that is. And I like to think that even if it does nothing else for an artist, and certainly this is the same for when someone's listening to my work, even if you listen to it and think that this is categorically wrong, what it does is it reinforces the position that you have and you un- begin to understand why it is that the choices you made are correct. So for me, this kind of shift from a, the economic exchange to the time exchange is now the kind of one of the driving forces about this question of how people come to the work. I don't mind if you can listen on headphones or nice home stereo on your laptop. What I'm hoping for is that I can convince people to give each and every record the time that they deserve. And that's about a production quality, I suppose. But it's also about helping people, particularly those that aren't necessarily familiar with the work, to have opportunities, gateways, if you like, as to why it is they should be committing to it. What is it going to give them that another record isn't? And that's more and more critical and I, I think one of the kind of key things that labels need to be conscious of is well, actually what just because we can do does not mean we should do and that for me is something that has, in the last five years particularly has become basically a mantra you know it's it's really it's never been easy to put music out there um, but it's never been harder maybe to get people to listen in such a, a way that is deserving of the music.
over the last couple of years, probably I'd say the last half decade, I've become really interested in listening uh, because I realised probably at the root of my entire life is this practice of listening. You know, I kind of have this semi-joke where you know people say what do you do i say i'm a professional listener which makes me sound like a therapist of some description but really what it i think it for me it quite honestly means is that every dimension of my life is is around audition and my my capability and interest in listening and whether that be producing a record making field recordings uh, listening to other people's work, mastering material, wh- whatever the case is, there is, you know, my ears and my capabilities as a listener play a huge part in, in my everyday life. Partly coming out of my work with field recordings and certainly from listening to the field recordings w- work of, of other artists around the world and the way that that work was being positioned as part of this canon of sound arts, I thought it actually provoked a really interesting question which was where if we are going to welcome this practice of field recording as an example into the canon of sound arts then where is it exactly that the creativity of that act where is it the artistry of that act falls and uh, you know obviously field recording comes out of this tradition of the 20th century of ethnographic tradition of of documentation I think that is now largely rejected we've accepted that this, this notion of Objectivity, the possibility for objectivity in any kind of ethnographic sense is entirely rejected. It is a, it's subjective. So if, if we kind of uh, are f- framing uh, or contextualising some kind of subjective exposure, then I started to think, well, if we go back to the root of this activity, you know, it's, a, it's about recording and it's about being able to transmit that recording, then we have to go back to what happens before that recording takes place, which is the listening. And there was a fantastic book uh, called Listening by this uh, French author called Peter Shandy. And in that book, he has these two very simple provocations that for me are the foundation of a lot of my interest in research at the moment, which was, can one listen to a listener's listening? And if you can, can you transmit that listening as unique as it is? And I started thinking about that. I thought, that's a really interesting question. Because... It actually also then asks, what is, what is the listening? And it asks you to differentiate, at least it asked me, to differentiate critically between this idea of hearing and listening. Hearing is a kind of sensory, passive, ongoing uh, experience, and listening as a kind of active, agentive performance, if you like. So, you know, right now people listening to the show are being active they are filtering out other information whether that be the traffic outside their house or the cat meowing downstairs or the television on in the next room whatever the case might be they are filtering out that information hopefully in favor of our voices and and the sound that is coming out of out of the uh the show so there is a kind of ownership if you like uh an agency that's being practiced there and I realised with field recording very much what is happening, at least for me and I, I believe for other people working with that, is that there is a, a kind of uh, performance of listening where you are turning it on and off in a certain period of time. And that listening is innately creative. Rather than taking in the entire objective environment, which of course is impossible, you are subjectively 
focused on certain things. It might be that there is a, a bee or a bird in the tree. You, 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 a great example uh, that I use is, you know, you, you want to record a bird in a tree next to a highway. And you've got your field recording gear out, and you, 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 you've got it in your hand, you press record, and then you record for 10 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, you're listening to the bird song and think, wow, this is the most incredible bird song I've ever heard. It's so beautiful. Cannot wait to get this recording home in the studio and have a listen to it. You get home, you take the SD card out, you put it in the machine, and then suddenly all you've got is this like massive rumble of traffic. And very distantly, somewhere lost, this occasional peaking bird coming through. And you realise, hopefully at that point, that your listening, your psychological interior uh, listening that goes on between your, your organic ears and your brain is not anything like the kind of external prosthetic listening device of the microphone. They're two entirely different horizons of listening. And when you were listening to that bird, you were filtering out the traffic. You were focused on the bird. You were privileging the bird above all the other information that was on going on around you. The microphone, however, had no interest in the bird. What it was interested in was in recording whatever was in its horizon of listening. And sure, it has some, if you like, physiological, technological um, implications, whether it be an omni microphone or cardioid, whatever, but it isn't going to share none of that psychological uh, interest, preoccupation that you have. So my idea with this relational listening was actually, well, what we need to recognise if we're going to talk about this idea of transmitting a listener's listening, and I believe it can happen, is that we need to recognise that at that moment when you were listening to the bird and the microphone was listening to the bird, for want of a better word for the microphone, you were actually, there were two horizons of listening that were taking place. And a horizon of listening is different to a horizon of vision. With a horizon of vision, it's fixed. There's a kind of linearity to it that, you know, as I look out the window right now, my, the horizon of vision is either the sky or it's fixed at the, uh, the building across the road. My horizon of listening, however, is entirely dynamic in that as a car passes by or as someone walks on the street outside or someone yells out, for that moment that person enters or that event enters my horizon of listening and then as soon as it moves, whether it be because of shifts in dynamics or it stops making the sound, it then departs the horizon of listening. So these two horizons of listening, your interior psychological listening and the external prosthetic listening of the microphone, to create a successful listening and this desire to transmit it, um, and this is the kind of where the relational listening idea comes into it, I believe that you have to bring those two horizons of listening into relation with one another. And the further you can bring them into relation with one another and the further they can be crossed over, more successful the relational listening can be. So it's a very simple idea, really, but what it does is it recognises the fundamental processes that go on, for most of us, intuitively when we're doing this process. But it also, for me, which I think is one of the most important parts about it, it demarcates the possibility for this practice to have a creative capacity. It can be part of the sound arts if we recognise that the kind of agency, uh, and if you like, the, the sort of, I often say this, the politics of perception are recognised and the capacity of the listenership uh, is recognised. Without that, we're kind of left swinging in the breeze because we need that anchor point. We need to be able to point to the, the uh, positions at which these creative choices are made. Otherwise, the idea of fitting it into a kind of uh, art canon is, is just preposterous. Mr. Lawrence English, label manager of Room 40, musician, 
sound artist, curator, raconteur. Throughout this piece, we've heard music from Lawrence's most recent album, Wilderness of Mirrors, as well as his 2011 release, The Peregrine, and from two field recording works available for free from Room 40, Songs of the Living and And the Lived In. If you want to find out more about Room 40, you can head to the Room 40 website, which you'll find online at room40.org. Also, you can rewind back in time to episode two of Out From Under, where I interviewed Chris Abraham from The Next. Chris has a brand new album, solo album, released through Room 40 called Fluid to the Influence. And on that episode two podcast, he discusses that album in some detail. And next week's episode, we're going to be talking to Andrew Tuttle, whose latest work, Fantasy League, is featured on the Room 40 imprint, Someone Good. I'm Stuart Buchanan, and you've been listening to an episode of Out From Under, broadcast on Resonance Extra in the UK and podcast by FBI Radio in Sydney. The program's home online is at outfromunderradio.tumblr.com, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as Out From Under Radio.